Good morning, folks. It's lovely to be here. Sophie, what a lovely job you did. I can now go and sit down, I think. Wherever you She's out there. About eight years ago, I, something happened. I decided it's time to go back to Melbourne to live. I'd been here for 33 years. And so I told everyone I was going and I began the task of cleaning up. I gave away some books, I sold some shares to raise money, I went to Melbourne to look around, I made a bid on a house down in Carrum Downs, offered him 50 grand less than he wanted, but he wouldn't accept it. I looked into the price of containers and so on. But after three months of all this, I just thought, I just realised how enormous the task was. So what do you do with a house that's got a dark room, a woodworking shop, a bookbinding shop, 3,000 books and so on? And I decided it was easier to stay and put up with Tasmania than go back. In dealing with this passage today, which is also in Mark and Luke, but it's in Mark and Luke, it's a much bigger story because it's the story of the man coming down through the roof. Uh, in Matthew, he's just on, a, on, on the ground outside a house. Um, the same question arises. With me, which is easier, stay here and put up with Tasmania or go back to beautiful Melbourne? I mean it for me. Or else, um, which is easier, um, your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk. That is to forgive or to heal, which is easier. But my first point in this story, as we find it in Mark and Luke, is, and this might surprise you, is, by, is considered by some to be so unbaptist. Matthew has the story outside a house. Mark has it inside a living room. Matthew's Setting is such there were no extreme measures needed of going up the stairs, digging through the thatch roof, putting a lot of crumbly stuff down below. Um, but in, math, in, in, in the story we have, uh, we have a lot about this man's friends. He, they did, demonstrated a faith and... Uh, we can see that their faith in Jesus take activated out by getting up onto the roof and all, um, as I said, is so unbaptist. These determined friends came equipped with sturdy legs and strong arms as well as a prayerful posture. Their confidence in Jesus that he was such that he could heal them, they could heal their, their dis disabled companion. So they had to get him to the feet of the master. Now, in writing about this passage, one of my lecturers at the Bible College in Victoria some years ago, Dr Ethel Jones, who was a contributor to the last Baptist hymn book. Ever seen a Baptist hymn book? There's not many around now. Thought that this passage was so unbaptist. He wrote, I belonged and this is you too, you know, I belong to a denomination to which the whole idea of faith by proxy is suspect. 
Indeed, I might say, I might use the word anathema. This delight is enshrined in the restoration of what this denomination, us, believes to be the New Testament meaning of baptism. Baptism, it claims, should be for believers. For the sacrament to have meaning, it must be accompanied by faith and not merely on the faith on the part of parents, sponsors, the church and so on. It must be faith on the part of the baptised one or otherwise it's not a responsible baptism and doesn't carry the theology that we have in the New Testament on baptism. That's the end of his quote. We've all heard this so many times, haven't we? God has no grandchildren. Yet we must admit that there are times when we need others to carry us, to have faith in us or faith in whatever. We need the faith of others to bring us through and surely that's one of the reasons we're here Sunday by Sunday. Jesus couldn't have healed the paralytic unless the friends had been part of the project. They had to work to get him to Jesus. And as we've already heard, as they made their way to get him to Jesus, the door was locked, so they had to go up onto the roof. They were pretty sure that Jesus could do something for their friend. And they must have loved him a lot. They hated his illness and pain and that love forced them to do extreme, an extreme thing. So we need to thank God for the friends who are putting ourselves out for us. You know them. You've all experienced them in your life. It's happened to me more than once. It took the persuasion of Dr Kerry Denham who attended the Taruna Baptist Church some, what, 10 years ago to persuade the professors at the uni to let this bloke who didn't have a degree go and do a Master of Arts in History. He showed, me, he showed them my history of the um, Hobart Town Baptist Chapel and I've got it in my bag over there. So we could make it our prayer that God will help us to be such a friend to others. And it was a team effort with this business of getting this guy to Jesus. It's good to work together. You did it on, on uh, Anzac Day, didn't you? And uh, Jesus speaks to the paralysed man not as a result of any direct requests from the man himself, but in response to the faithfulness of his companions. And we could all wish for companions like that. But on a side note, and it was pointed out to me the other day when I went through this sermon with some friends, that the paralysed man too must have exercised faith. He allowed himself to be carried. He allowed himself to be precariously lowered down through the roof. And he must have wanted Jesus to heal him. So doctor, um, my dear doctor who taught me a bit about preaching, You've only got it partly right. Now, while this story is all about friendship, in actual fact, it's all about forgiveness. An author on 
on books on Christian spirituality, Deborah Farrington, tells in a monthly column in the um, magazine Christian Century of a play by Herbert Gardner. Now the play is called A Thousand Clowns and in it there's a character called Murray. He discovers that he can offer a simple apology to anyone who passes by and he'll get it. He stands on a corner, this is in this book, he stands on a corner in New York City and uh, watches the people passing by and as they go he says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And one by one they, yep, that's good, thanks, and they move on. And he comes to the conclusion that the most in, in life you can get is a good apology. But Farrington continued. I wonder what would have happened, she writes, if Murray had stood on the street corner telling the people, the folks passing by, that she actually forgave them. And uh, she says that the responses mightn't have been so warm. Some might have been rather hostile. And though most of us can readily imagine that we're, we're owed a, an apology for something, admitting that we've done something that requires forgiveness is not so easy. So how did the paralysed friend feel when, uh, when, he, when he heard, your, son, your, your, your sins are forgiven you? Did he wonder what his sins were? Did he feel defensive? Or did he search his memory for a particular sin which might have brought on his paralysis? We don't know. Mark tells us nothing about this man or his response to, to Jesus. And yet, is there anyone amongst us who doesn't need God's forgiveness? Who doesn't re need to be reminded that God is to forgive us, is willing to forgive us no matter what. When we confess, it's our acceptance of God's forgiveness that makes the, uh, the process complete. And if we confess that God already knows, then forgiveness takes root. And like the psalmist, we must be willing to say, O Lord, be gracious to me and heal me, for I have sinned against you. And when we can do that, We've not only received God's forgiveness, but we have accepted it. That rather odd and lovable Archbishop Desmond Tutu, we all remember him, don't we? Amazing guy. Demonstrated the power of forgiveness in South Africa by setting up a uh, truth and uh, uh, reconciliation committee. By providing this forum which uh, he opened up the way uh, of dealing with this cycle of forgiveness in the nation. He wrote, We are looking for the healing of relationships. We are seeking to open wounds, yet, but after opening them, to cleanse them so they don't fester. We cleanse them and then we pour oil on them and then we move on to the glorious future of God that is opening up for us. For ourselves, that's why sometimes on Sunday mornings in prayer we have this confession component. 
So Murray was wrong. A good apology in life is not the best we can expect in life. The best thing that we can expect in life is what's already promised, a good dose of forgiveness. And God stands on every corner, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, telling us, you are forgiven. Do we need to hear those words today? But there's another aspect to forgiveness and I want to deal with it. And it's the whole question of forgiving yourself. The man on the bed might have had a different problem. He mightn't have been able to forgive himself for something or other. And there's a truth at times that we sometimes ourselves cannot forgive ourselves. We've all heard of the Methodist Alan Walker. I came across a writing of his the last week or so, he, um, he's referring to a novel that some of you girls and boys would have dealt with at school in probably matriculation, Albert, Albert Camus' story, The Fall. Now, the central story, central person in the story is a Parisian lawyer, well-connected, well very happy about life, but one day he walks across the bridge that, of the river that runs through the centre of Paris and something happened that he never forgot and that's why the book is called The Fall. And he, and he writes and he speaks in the novel. I've only gone 60 yards, he said, when I heard the sound as if a body was sinking in the water. I heard a cry as I walked across the bridge. It came up a few times and it was going down and whatever it was coming from was going downstream. Then suddenly it ceased. I wanted to run and yet I didn't stir. Then slowly, under the rain, I went away. I informed no one and in the next few days I didn't read any newspapers. But the memory of this incident haunted him. Years later, still bearing his inner sense of guilt, he said, O oh, young woman, throw yourself into that water again so that I might have a second time to save us both. But it's too late now. It's too late now. I gather there's some here and I know there's a lot of people who cannot forgive themselves for this or that. And maybe we were one of them. They feel that they've married the wrong person or they're making, made a mess of something in life or they're making a lot of mistakes. They carry this heavy weight knowing that they ran out on their children, their friends and whatever and a significant num number feel guilty about, well, their sexual fantasies or disturbed by the, the, the deep anger that they've got in their life. And we know when we harm someone, it's normal and healthy to feel bad about it, to experience regret and wish we could, and we wish we could go back and do something about it. What isn't healthy, healthy is that we beat ourselves up for our offence and determine that we are just a bad person. The first experience is generally thought of as guilt. The second is considered to be shame. 
Now, guilt can be understood as being disappointed in oneself for violating the, the norms or the codes of behaviour that you have. Feeling guilty is actually a healthy thing. It can open up to doors for change. But shame is something else all again. Shame is incredibly unhealthy. It causes feelings of unworthiness. Shame is an extremely deliberating emotion. Shame is responsible for a myriad of problems, including being criticising oneself and self-blame, self-neglect, self-destructive behaviours and intense rage. When we feel shame, we, we need to learn that it's okay to feel good in ourselves. Self-forgiveness is not only recom recommended, but it's totally es essential if we want to know what it is to be emotionally healthy and have peace of mind. So maybe the, the paralysed man in our story needed a good dose of self-forgiveness. The good news is that we can change our behaviour and forgive ourselves at the same time. In fact, the more we forgive ourselves, the more we will be motivated for change. And there's a couple of beautiful words in the New Testament on this. There's one in um, 1 John 3.19. We set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. God is greater than our hearts. If God has forgiven us, shouldn't we also forgive ourselves? And then there's one in John 8, 36. If the Son, that is Jesus, sets you free, you are free indeed. And another beautiful one in Hebrews 10, 17. Their sin and lawlessness I will remember no more. Forgiving ourselves for the ways that we have hurt and harmed others will probably be the hardest things we can do in life. We are all imperfect. We're all fallible human beings. And like all human beings, we in sometimes do the things we shouldn't. Let's accept the limitations of our human imperfection, have compassion on ourselves and forgive us ourselves. But unquestionably, sometimes there's more we need than just an apology. This means at times, instead of blaming someone else for what happens, we need to look at ourselves. It's been pointed out that we can look at a starry sky at night. It speaks to us as God, as creator. But the world of nature speaks no forgiveness or even self-forgiveness. History itself is a strange twistings and turnings. It doesn't help either. It only bears witness to the judgment of God. Then our own consciences condemn us, but they too cannot speak of forgiveness. And we all know that sin is written large in the lives of men and women, written in, in the blood of prisoners, written on the battlefields in the lives of those who are there, and what sin and shame will come out of what's happening at the moment with Russian soldiers in the Ukraine. Sin is written in every day-to-day in -day living. 
and there's no self-punishment that's adequate to set us free or no self-punishment enough to assuage our guilt. And there's only one place in the entire world where we can be convinced of our sins and be forgiven and it's in the presence of the crucified Jesus, God with us. God the Son who so loved us that he came and, and sat with us in the midst of our desolations, yes, and was crucified for us. Thank God that in Jesus speaks the word, your sins are forgiven. And maybe God wants us to hear that right now. And that can entail self-forgiveness. But back to our gospel story. Declaring a person's sins forgiven may have seen a terrible anticlimax in the story after the bed was lowered and the light was pouring through the hole in the roof. But that's what Jesus came for. Physical healings, wonderful they are, are merely a byproduct. Frank Stagg, an American Baptist author and preacher, says something important here. He writes, For us, forgiving is harder, for we've made more progress in healing diseases than in forgiving one another. And I gather he's thinking of our hospitals. I add to what he says, For us, forgiving ourselves is harder. This is because our church's experiences have taught us that we are more given to law than gospel because it's easier to live with a God who punishes than with a God who is hurt by our offences and suffers with us and forgives us. And all through this let us not forget that forgiveness entails the whole matter of repentance on our part, that is, a change of direction in our lives. I'm going to close here, and I'm going to close with a prayer that looks at the question of self-forgiveness, and it'll be in the first person. Let us pray. Lord, I understand that there is nothing to gain by holding myself in unforgiveness, and that there's everything to gain by releasing myself from unforgiveness and beginning the process of healing. Lord, I want to move forward and make a positive difference in the future. I confess the ungodly accountability, self-abasement and vows I have made never to forgive myself. Because Jesus died for my sins, I choose to forgive myself to no longer punish myself and be angry with myself. I forgive myself for letting this hurt control me and for hurting others out of my hurt. I repent of this behaviour and my attitude. I ask for your, for your forgiveness and healing. God help me never again to retain unforgiveness of myself or others. Thank you for loving me and for your grace to, to, to move forward with you. Amen. Let me just say that uh, if I've raised matters that you'd like to talk with, uh, with someone and pray with someone, I'm sure there'll be those at the front who will be glad to meet you. Amen.